In the late 1800s, early Tarpon pioneers discovered Boca Grande and its famous pass. The pass is where thousands of tarpon collect in a small area. Presidents, athletes, and movie stars have all fished these fabled waters in search of a giant tarpon. In all their restaurants and hotels, there you'll see molds of this great fish hanging on their walls. Old photographs, too, of dead tarpon hanging from hooks. In addition to the massive humanoids in the past, sharks have become a major problem as well, targeting vulnerable tarpon that have been hooked. For years, the most effective way to fish was with live bait until the early 1990s when a snagging jig became the norm. On today's podcast, we sit with Captain Frank Davis, who has become the voice of reason for the sacred tarpon hole. We hope you enjoy this important conversation. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Well, Frank Davis, thank you for joining us in the Millhouse. Well, thanks for having me. You know, um, I've always wanted to have a voice uh, from Boca Grande Pass and the fisheries here, the, that professional tarpon tournament series that was shut down. I think you were a big part of it. But let's go back a little bit be, before we get into your life and your influence here. <clears throat> if you take a look at the history of Boca Grande, it became really famous back in the 1800s. Um, 1885, they caught the very first, I think it was uh, Herbert something Wood. What was his name? I, I can't think of it. His last name was Wood. He caught a 93-pound tarpon, which is actually the very first big game fish caught on rod and reel. Right. And he was so excited, he put it on ice and drove it to New York. <laughs> do you remember that story? I do. I do. I remember that being part of what started big game fishing in the in the world or in this part of the country anyway. So, yeah. So in the nineteen ten, Boca Grande was had all kinds of people. It was really really hot and heavy with tarpon. Wherever you go, restaurants and hotels, there are tarpon on the wall. You know, so the attention was really uh, big. I think most likely, you could say. That this is the tarpon capital of the world. Well, it's got the reputation as being that. And when the railroad came to the island, that brought all the northern visitors. And then the hotel opened. And then property became more valuable. And uh, But it is known as the world's greatest tarpon fishing. It's almost, it's almost, it's, it's a place where you can just about guarantee you're going to catch a tarpon. Right. Yeah, if you I, put I your think, time in. I think the the keys call themselves the uh, the fishing capital of the world. Yes, but when you I really, think that's just from the diversity, right? Absolutely, yeah. you but, catch swordfish and bonefish and redfish, everything. Yeah, but this is tarpon country. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your your history here and your family. Well, I was born in Arcadia, just a little town forty miles north of here, and my dad had a hardware store in Arcadia, and it it he had, had brought the first propane gas service in bottle tanks to the area and he saw the potential in that and he bought a place in Belglade, Florida, a storage facility with rail, 
that he serviced uh, not only residential, but the whole agricultural community. And we moved from Arcadia to Belglade, Florida in 65, 66. And that business helped him uh, buy a place in Boca Grande and build his dream home. And they built their dream home in 81. But we came to Boca Grande every summer and every weekend, as long as I can remember, since the mid-60s. Do you remember... I mean, I've got some notes here. You used to run to school in your own boat. Well, I never did that. We, um, in high school, I went to high school in Belglade and graduated from there and then went on to college um, and moved back to Boca Grande in 80, 81 after my parents had built the house after I graduated with col- in college in agribusiness and agri-science and I become a fishing guide. Right. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> but, uh, um, I never actually – now, the school children back in the 60s did go by boat mm-hmm. to school. They collected them in the outer islands of Caia Costa, Giuseppe, and they all came to the island school in Boca Grande. When did your first fishing come into your life? Was your dad a big fisherman? I am the only fisherman fishing guide in the family. Um but my, you said you came here a lot with your dad fishing. Yes. My dad was, when he was growing up in Arcadia, came here every chance he got and fished off the bridges or fished with the friend in a boat. And they'd spend all night, every weekend, and then get up early and go back to work on Monday morning. And that's what we did as kids, as children growing up. We would come here after work on Fridays from Belglade stay all weekend and get up at five in the morning on Monday so we could be back in time for school and dad for work. So it was, it was, it was in your heart at a very young age. Absolutely. But then you became involved with uh, Marlin tournaments and running big boats. Back when I first moved back to Boca Grande in the early eighties, when I graduated college, I took a job as a mate on a 60 foot Hatteras. And that was just going to be part time. And it was going to be a fun gig for the summer. And then I was going to get real about my ag career because I had a job already waiting for me in, in with the sugar industry in, in Belglade. And because uh, I had done an internship in college. Right. And they were waiting for me. And I said, no, I'm not ready yet. So I took that job as a mate and ended up doing that for four and a half years. And then I decided I'm not going to work for the sugar industry. I'm going to stay here. And... After the mate job, I got my captain's license and went up to um, Mobile, Alabama. I had actually moved up there to do a job for a seed and fertilizer company to give my ag background a try. I committed it. I committed one year. On that 365th day, I said, see ya. Hmm. Well, fishing was in your blood. Boats were in your blood. Being on yeah. the ocean was in your blood. Because tell me about the when you were fourteen years old, and you worked on a harbor, uh, a harbor pilot boat. Well, growing up in Boca Grande in the in the seventies was like living on Fantasy Island. It was it was such a neat experience. Um, when the uh, when I was fourteen, uh, I taken a job as a mate on the um the pilot boat for the harbor service when the phosphate was going in full full blast the oil dock was there and they needed a mate to take the lines from the the ships and take to these huge buoys that were as big as this table with a huge hook on them and i'd take four on and four off and i'd take this huge hawser line pull it down wrapped around a cleat pilot would go over there and i'd jump off put it on the hook jump back on Jump under the, the, the buoy. On, onto the buoy. As a 14-year-old with that current going through Boca Grande Pass. <laughs> and this is a little irresponsible death. from somebody. Not I, yours. I was scared to death. Oh, and, you were? Oh, <laughs> and what, what was the captain saying to you? Just do Laughing. this. Yeah, just jump off and hey, hold on. I said, no big <clears> deal. Just jump up there and bird crap everywhere. You're slipping and sliding. And, and then they're pulling that cable and that buoy's turning like that. You're going, oh, God. Right. Don't fall off. I mean, but was this normal for the young kids to be, you know, working on these pilot boats? Yeah. Do- doing this? Yep. yep. And when did it stop? When did the first kid die? 
No. <laughs> it would have been me, trust me, if it would have happened. But never an injury, never fell in the water. And and doing that and uh, also is being the mate on the boat, which you took care of the boat and checked everything for the captain before he came on board. And it was it was really special seeing all these ships come in from all over the world. And you never knew. At one point, there'd be six or seven ships anchored up in the harbor, Japan, Russia, China, who knows? They were from all over the world. It was really a neat experience as a young kid doing that. Yeah. Tell us about that railroad. My father and I, when we were driving down here, said that there was a rail railroad that took him took people from Philadelphia straight to Boca Grande. Absolutely. When they opened up the railroad to Boca Grande, that that Boca Grande became discovered, and and it became early nineteen hundreds. Early nineteen hundreds. Right. And it became known as a fishing destination. Then it was it was the place to go if you wanted to catch a tarpon mm -hmm. and the rail uh then is when they established the phosphate port um because they were digging phosphate in arcadia it was closer to here than it was to tampa and then that opened up a whole nother part of the island the south end of the island where the phosphate port was was like its own little city. It was a whole different zip code. So they they would mine, they'd mine the phosphate and load the phosphate onto ships coming in for transportation elsewhere. They would they would load them on the trains, and the train would bring the phosphate in, unload it in storage facilities on the south end of the island. Right. And then there was this huge. I've got a picture in my office. There's a huge conveyor belt that came from that uh, storage facility, and it and it just ran it up to a big hopper on the ships and then they just load the ships just move it up and down the ship what they use phosphate uh phosphate for cosmetics toothpaste fertilizer a uh, number of things and they still to this day paint they're still ma mining over here absolutely yeah. and they're still using the south side of the island to no the the southern end load. of the island closed down in 1976 77 the last train left in 1978 that was it. Hmm. They shut it down because it wasn't feasible. They were hitting more uh, uh, pits, so to speak, closer to Tampa. And then that opened up Tampa to be the main port instead of Boca Grande. Right. Were, were there any environmental issues regarded <clears throat> with the phosphate pit? You know, it, it was when that phosphate operation was going full blast, there was dust flying everywhere. There was a sheen on the water. Um, and we're out there tarpon fishing all this, and it never affected anything. We were catching redfish and snook off the dock when everything was in full operation. And there was tons of that spilled in the water. I mean, tons of it. Never bothered a thing because the current was so swift through that pass. It never it settled. It yeah. never settled. Mm. Before we get into the more of the tarpon stuff, let's go back to mating on a billfish boat and then you rent, you were a captain you won a bunch of these tournaments you know if you talk to a lot of guys in the fishing world a lot of them started out as mates what was that evolution as a mate to captain when i first started on that 60 footer um i'd never done anything like that before and i didn't know if it was something that i was gonna gonna like or pursue but it just fit and I loved it so much that I ended up, um, the captain on the boat was an absolute fantastic mentor of mine. And he's still around, Johnny Johnson. He was just an incredible, incredible guy. He taught me everything, how to run big boats, how to maintain them, how to, how to rig baits, how to do everything. And we traveled to Panama City. We traveled to the Keys. Um, and it just, it just was a learning curve for me, basically, on my own. And if I saw people that I knew in our travels and say, what are you doing? You know what? And they'd show me and I'd just watch and learn. I kind of taught myself, basically. And But I loved it so much, I moved on to get my captain's license and I started running boats. I ran a boat out of St. Pete and then up in Panama or Destin, excuse me. That's when I won my first tournament was in Marlin tournament was in Destin in 1985 as a 25-year-old. That was pretty special. We caught the only blue marlin in the tournament, too, by the way. Wow. But it was coming off of a huge tropical depression, and we were one of the only idiots that stayed out. How many boats were in that tournament? There were, I think, 80 boats in that wow. tournament. Wow. 
And you, yeah. what did you win? What was the prize? <laughs> we won. It was over a hundred grand, about one hundred and twenty grand. Wow. Yeah. So as a twenty-five year old, that was pretty exciting. You didn't party that night, did you? <laughs> <laughs> they all laugh when you say that, Nicky. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. <laughs> How'd you go from big boats and winning Merlin tournaments to uh, fishing the pass? Well, we had fished the pass in those big boats that I was a mate on. Or 60 mate, foot Hatteras. 60, listen, back in that day, back in the 80s, there were 70 footers out there, 60, 70, 50 footers out there, the Miss Budweiser. A beautiful 61 Rabovich was out there. They came every year, entertained clients. Big boats fished that pass and never had a problem. Always caught fish. How did they not bump into each other with all that current? It was close. It was close. It was amazing how well the guides worked together and with those big boats. Now, it'd get hairy sometimes. But when someone hooked a fish, everyone gave them space. Right. Got out of the way. Gave them space. And they still do that today. And how, how many boats back then were fishing the pass? Oh, my God. There'd be 40, 50 boats out there eating it. Big time. boats. Big boats. Yep. And what is, it, what is it today? Well, well, this was the place where they all came to entertain their clients and do business deals. Mm-hmm. Boker Grand was, was it. And the Gasparill End was to capacity. And it was a destination. And like I said, you could almost guarantee someone was going to catch a tarpon when you came to Boca Grand Pass. It was so big that a lot of presidents came here. Absolutely. Thomas Edison caught his first tarpon here and ended yep. up having a home, I think, in Marco Island. Yeah. Yeah. President Bush, a good friend of, of mine and his whole family, I think they're still coming here. They're still. Uh, George W. They do. Yep. Thomas Edison came here? Yeah. Huh. Thomas Edison caught a fish here and ended up uh, owning a home, I think it was in Marco Island or Naples. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot of um, celebrities, a lot of sports, um, athletes, coaches. um, They they love it here. I I think it's because they know they can come here and not get harassed. Because it's just like they're a small little island. They're just like everyday people, just like we are. And and back when those big boats were fishing the past, were they fishing live bait crabs? Yeah, they weren't the jig fishermen. The it was it was all live bait then. Crab, shrimp, squirrel fish. It was all live bait. Does it only work on an outfalling, going tide, falling tide over there? No. I mean, it, if it's incoming, outgoing. Um, either tide. Either you could, tide. You could catch them. Mm-hmm. As long as it's moving. And obviously, if you're not moving, your bait's not going anywhere. Now, you guys, you'll still catch them. Don't get me wrong. But it's it's better when it's moving. But it also, too, the boat's got to stay above your bait. Yes. So there's no angle of your line into the water. Well, in theory. In theory. Yeah. That's what you want, but it's hard to do. Well, that current, you know there's some bow in the line. There there has to be. And that's why we mark our lines, too, so we don't hook bottom. Right. And it was always easy for the angler. It's simple for the angler to come because like you hit the mark on the reel. It's all marked 42 and 60 feet, which is the majority of the ledges in the past. And it's just, you know, easy laid back gentleman's fishing and of course when the hookup turns into game on right but uh it it was it was just a, a place where everybody came to play and they knew they wouldn't get harassed do you know who first started the past fishing oh god I mean, that's, that's a, a long good, time ago yeah that's 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 a good question i'm sure there will be plenty of them that will claim that right you know but uh I think it it goes back to the original uh, families like the the Futches and the Coleman's and the the Wheelers. Uh, the 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 railroad people were also uh, guide trips as well when they had in between you know ships or or shifts or whatever, mm-hmm. and they'd be out there in these old wooden boats with old office chairs that they converted into fighting chairs it was really great to see and i caught the very tail end of that when did they start um dispersing these boats and fishing the back country and the beaches and and all that back then also yeah i mean there wasn't as many people fishing the beaches in the back bay and fly fishing really wasn't popular back in that time i mean it it was but it was a well-kept secret right um the beaches became popular probably in the 80s late 80s early 90s more popular and there's some old timers that'll tell you that 
that was the worst thing that ever could have happened to them. But in the back bay, the same thing. It was it became more and more popular because I think people got tired of the congestion of the pass and they mm-hmm. wanted to do something different. Right. And they liked doing the beach or doing the up to the harbor. When, when Homo Sasso was in his prime, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, when everyone was down up there fly fishing, was this a prolific fly fishing spot back then? Yes. It was? Yes. Um, Who was like one of the first pioneers around Boca Grande fly fishing? I'm going to probably say Phil O'Bannon. Right. Was probably one of the the first ones to to get it started. And um, then, it, then it just kind of bled on to... Others that not many out of towners came to fly fish. They came to pass fish, right? And uh, so the fly fishing was kept a pretty good secret for years. I fished it here once in like '88. I was fishing in in Boca Grande, not I was fishing in Homosassa with Tommy Locke. We hadn't seen a fish in like four days. I said, Tommy, I I can ski at ninety, but I can't fish at zero. <laughs> <laughs> hadn't seen a fish i said let's go to book grand i want to see that place so we trailered down here went to lunch had a hamburger but but 12 crabs and we went out to the pass and he showed me how to fish the pass and then i was fishing with a spinning rod and all of a sudden we got outside so there's some fish on the outside we get out there and we were surrounded by a school we were in the middle of a donut that there had to have been hundreds and hundreds of fish inside this circling our boat and you throw your crab out there, and you can see the fish coming around. Every cast, you, you, we hooked 12 tarpon. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow, how cool is this? But I think that the evolution of the sport, and this is why I really wanted to get you on the podcast. I wanted to talk to you about the evolution of the jig fishing, the tournaments over there, the TV tournament that you guys got canceled. So let's go back to the pass. Who started the, the jig fishing? And, and why was that so popular? I remember when two local guides came to me and showed me this jig. Was that called and, the Coom Pop? Well, it was designed after the Coom Pop, but it, it was different. And what was the Coom Pop? The Coom Pop was the Cajuns, the Louisiana, used that, and they trolled it. They didn't fish it straight up and down. It was used as a trolling lure, and that's how they caught their tarpon. And it's a it had a longer tail and a long and a hook back into the into the tail, uh, with a, a round head, a big a big weighted head, big weighted head, circle circle hook and circle hook, yeah, and a rubberized tail. Yes. Okay. But it was trolled, it was pulled behind the boat and trolled like a marlin lure, and that's how they caught their tarpon. And were they snagged or were they caught in the mouth? They were caught. Those fish. Yeah. It, when you're trolling, to my knowledge, they were caught. Yeah. Um, these guys brought this rig to me in the in the early, like late eighties. Yeah, it was the late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what do you think of this? And if I'd have known then what I know now, I'd have said, "No, God, please don't don't even try this. Don't even." But it it just looked like I. My first impression with that, I said, I'm not going to catch anything off of that. Nobody's going to bite that. Thing. I said that too. Nobody's going to bite that thing. Nobody's going to bite that. It was a short tail, big round head, and the hook was right on top of the lid. So and it was a red, the head was a red weight. Yeah. Like, like a ball. Yeah. It was a ball. There was a four or six ounce lead, and uh, they either painted them red or yellow, some green. And the tail was like a tiger pattern, tiger tail pattern. But the hook was right on top of the lead, right on top of it. I said, "What? What are you doing?" It was tied on with like a like a tie strap, right? It was tied on with a zip tie. Zip tie. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it was a breakaway. And as live bait guys, we fish with breakaway leads too. It was just safer around the boat, which that law has since changed, and I'll get back to that. But um, when they showed me this, I went, "Have at it!" You know, I never thought it would have grown into the disaster it grew into let's put it that way for lack of a better term because these fish were you know they would go out there and we'd be out on a trip and the fish would stop stop bite and we're drifting and drifting and drifting nothing these guys would come out with that rig and they're flying fish all over the place i'm going are you kidding me what is what is it about this that there's there's no way 
So we started trying it. We said, okay, we've got to try this. So we'd get some jigs and we'd try them, but they were hooked on the side of the, in the clipper, under the chin, in the belly, in the side pecs. And I said, wait a minute, something's going on here. And this lasted for years. Years. And we got to do something about this. And it was, it got worse and worse and worse where, you know how you're fishing next to somebody and you may be using the same thing that they are and they're catching more fish than you are and they're kind of, you know, snickering at you. And these guys were kind of getting belligerent Mm -hmm. and they were making us look bad because, you know, the bite's over. I mean, we've caught plenty of fish, don't get me wrong, but the bite is over. And they come around a corner, and here's all these boats gathering all over the fish, and all of a sudden they're flying everywhere. Also, a snag fish takes longer to 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 land, so now you have a long duration, uh, duration, you know, to to land them. The fish get tired, and they get shark bit. If I'm not mistaken, that was like like a red flag at that early in that stage, or did it come later? Or our observation was that it a foul hooked fish always goes with the current always goes with the current and never goes back against the current like a regular a fish hooked in the mouth would now don't get me wrong some of them do go with the current but these foul hooked fish always went with the current and they'd be fighting these fish with lighter tackle for way too long and the fish would almost be dead by the time they got it up and of course a shark if it didn't get eaten by a shark it was going to die anyway and we were seeing more and more fatality and especially in the tournaments when they gaffed the fish. Now, we used to gaff fish, too, in the tournaments, but we quit. We stopped doing that because we were seeing a mortality rate. After every tournament and the weekends, there would be dead fish all over the all over the harbor and in the past. So let me t- so let's go back to the tournament. So you'd gaff the fish, throw it in the boat, and go weigh it? Well, they would never throw it in the boat. They would lip gaff the oh, fish. It was, you're, so you're talking about lip gaffing, lip not gaff. gaffing, lip yeah. gaffing. Lip gaff. And drag yeah. them over to a boat that had a weigh station on yes. it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And they'd hoist them up in a in a sling, weigh it with a digital scale, and then pop it back in the water and try to revive it. But You take a fish yeah. out of the water, it's toast. Well, it, you know, tarpon being a suction feeder, you know how it's got a hole in its lower jaw? Mm-hmm. Can't feed properly. I right. can't. I can't believe the tournament didn't have a set of rules that said the hook has got to be in the mouth. Okay. Well, after pressure, they they um, decided that that was going to be a rule. So when you won this tournament, the uh, world's richest uh, tarpon tournament, that was the technique and tactics. The first year, 94, we gaffed them. Okay. When I won we, in 94. Was it jig fishing or bait only? There was both. There was There was both styles of fishing were allowed then did you jig fish at the time or were you baiting only no, it was traditional live bait so that must have been harder to win than the guys that were jig fishing because it's a traditional way you're not snagging fish right and it it wasn't a and then it in it and then it when we were seeing what was happening then it was instated in the rules that no jigs were allowed live bait only and then the jig guys quit fishing the tournament or they either just fish with live bait, and that was it. Right. Um, so it was, and then these other set of tournaments came in, and that was a whole another situation. So let's go back a little bit. How long did it take you guys to to ban the jig fishing? Two and a half years. But it had been in existence for how long before you said we got to stop this? Ten or more years. Right. Yeah. What 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 happened was not only. Um, us as fishing guides saw the reality of what was happening. But local islanders, especially down at the park at the south end, the, the caretaker of the lighthouse, after each tournament, they would see dead fish up of these jig tournaments. They'd see dead fish on the beach and up in the harbor, and they all had a hole in their lower jaw, so you know where they were coming from. Right. So we decided, you know, enough's enough. We gotta do something about this. And it took two and a half years and a lawsuit and a lot of money, but we we got it banned. Who was suing you? The jig fishermen? Well, the owner of the tournament was, oh, okay. was suing us. Right. And it, sued myself and four others personally and uh, the organization that we formed at the time called Save the Tarpon as a corporation as well. 
And how did uh, it did it go to court? How did you get it banned? Well, we had um, a lot of help from the Florida Wildlife Commission. Finally, they decided that this was not a a jig; it was a foul hooking device. Mm-hmm. After we documented, we took thousands of pictures. We had photographers go out and film <clears throat> these tournaments and see where these fish, you know, jigs are everywhere. They're all over the place. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes they were in the mouth, but we even did a hook placement study. FWC did a a hook placement study one year, and they found that over 70% of jig-caught fish were hooked outside the mouth. Right. Live bait, only 1% that happened. Only 1%. So Ken Wright, who was the head commissioner, uh, at the time of Florida Wildlife Commission was very instrumental in getting this this ban. And they voted on it, and it was unanimous that that was a snagging device. Well, it sounds like the problem is twofold. One, you have a snagging device, and two, you were gaffing them, you were lip gaffing them with a big old hole in the in the mouth. Well, here's what happened. They FWC was giving them extra points for DNA swabs or the tournament was giving them extra points if you DNA swab that fish and send it in for scientific purposes. When we were finding all these dead fish, I went back on the weekend or the weekday after these tournaments and found all these dead fish. So I DNA swabbed them too. And guess what? They all matched. Interesting. So they knew they had a problem. Then they quit. All of a sudden they quit DNA swabbing the fish. So let me ask you, how can a DNA fish... Can you tell the difference between a, a DNA dead fish was caught with a jig versus a live bait? Same thing. No difference. DNA is DNA, whether it's dead or alive. Mm-hmm. But why? So why were you taking DNA swabs? Just to see if it was the fish in the tournament. To prove that they were harming these fish. See, because every I one see. of those yeah, fish yeah. Okay. had a hole in their lower but, jaw. W- but weren't those people, uh, recreational people fishing out there, or, or did it close the recreational pe- people during the tournament? They actually had, when their tournaments were going on, they actually had hired off-duty FWC officers that were known that if people came in and tried to fish during their tournaments, oh, no, no. They ran them off. They ran them off. So, obviously, it was all. That was terrible. Yeah. You know what's terrible. interesting is the, the gold cup, the golden fly, those two tarpon tournaments in the Keys, you still are allowed to use a lip gaff, which really? I find very interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people do it, but they I haven't don't think, I don't know if, the, the... I don't know of anybody that's using a lip gaff. I know a couple of people. Well, we quit doing that years and years ago and went to an all-release format for our tournaments. Mm-hmm. We, and, and, you know, I think that stopped in the mid-90s. We stopped gaffing fish. Late 90s. Mm-hmm. We stopped gaffing. Said, that's it. All releases. No more gaffing fish. And so we tried to set a precedent for them to follow, which they didn't. And But we never televised our tournaments either. We never were for profit for anything. Right. So we didn't need that. But, right. you know, to televise something, you got to have the drama, I guess. And that's what that's what happened. So that was the professional tarpon tournament series. Yes. Yeah. We saw that on TV. Talk about that uh, devastation. Well, in in live bait, when we're live bait fishing, we always in in the main purpose is using what you saw in my boat out there, an inboard boat. The exhaust is above the water, and you go ahead of the fish and drift back through and presenting your bait. You didn't get a bite. Everybody went around and came back through. The jig fishing boats were all outboards. And the, the the traditional guides in Boca Grande called them ass grinders. <laughs> and that just stuck. It just stuck for years because if you ever heard of an out, you, you've been under the water when you it, an outboard goes in and out of gear. Have you heard that mm, in no. the water? It's, it travels forever. And the, and the sound when they go into gear, you can hear it for hundreds of yards. You can hear it. If you ever just want to test that, you're at the beach or something and an outboard goes by, Stick your head on the water and listen to that sound. It's very unique. So then there, were, there was a war that was being waged between the old school and the new school guys. That's basically. But what these guys would do is they would, there would be 40, 50 boats. 
all outboards and they'd go mark their fish and they'd sit right on top of them and constantly in and out of gear, in and out of gear, harassing these fish, putting these jigs down. And before we got a law passed, this was another thing. They'd have six or eight rods overboard, just three on each side. And all these lines down there just harassing these fish constantly. And all that noise, and then they're flying fish or snag. So we did get a rule passed at only three rods at a time. That helped. But it still didn't help with them gaffing the fish and then dragging him to the weigh scale and basically holding him out of the water. I mean, 150-pound class fish. I mean, they were going after big females. Because you think the big females tend to stay lower on the bottom. And they would hook those big fish putting those jigs down on the bottom. And another thing, they'd lose a lot of terminal tackle, so the pass became a dumping ground. Mm -hmm. It literally became a dumping ground. And we hired divers every year to come in and just go get what they could and clean up. Sinkers, jigs, Sinkers, monofilament. monofilament. And you know, monofilament doesn't rot for, takes hundreds of years, hundreds Mm -hmm. of years. So that was a mess. Just out of curiosity, how was that tournament? What were the tournament rules? Did you get any points for leadering a fish, or yeah, you did? Oh yeah, yeah. And then it was a uh, just a weight overall weight of the fish. Yeah. And did you have five fish limit, or what was? Um, no. See, in 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 their tournament, I think you could weigh as many fish as long as you thought you could. Uh, no, excuse me, no. Once you weighed a fish, that was it. I'm sorry. If you, you thought you had a big fish, you weighed it, that's it. Um, and you, know, you take a chance of someone else catching a bigger fish and getting beat out. Mm-hmm. Oh, so one boat only had a – you had one fish per boat. Right. It, okay. Yeah, to weigh. Interesting. And yeah. that was over a course of what, a couple of days? Uh, they usually had one-day one one day day tournaments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what kind of prize money was there? Um, there wasn't much prize money. It was more prizes, like boats, watches – jewelry, stuff like that. I don't think there was a whole lot of money involved, but it was product. And a lot, lot of pride. Yeah. I know you mentioned that when you won this tournament in 2021, um, the richest tarpon tournament in the world, you you guys won over $100,000. Well, that was in 94. That, that was, was the first one you that won. That was the first one I won. Well, yeah. that's a lot of money back then. That was a lot of money. That's a lot of money now. Yeah. But what did it do for your career? Unbelievable. If you won that tournament, it boosted your career. You were booked, period. You were you were the king of the hill for a year. I mean, you're it's like winning the Daytona five hundred. Maybe for a lifetime of, yeah. of your of your career. It lasted a while. And then I didn't win it again until two thousand fourteen. And I placed third, you know, a few times. Mm-hmm. But um that first time in ninety four when I was really getting my career going, that was the one to win. Right. That just shows you how many people were tuned into this tournament. So they would just it's, see it on TV that you won or read it in the well, magazine and call, start calling you? Well, it, it, like I said, they, they weren't televised, but the news, all the local news stations showed up. Right. And they interviewed you after the tournament, you know. And it, it and was word, a, word of mouth, too. It was a big thing. Mm-hmm. It was huge. When did you start having the, the feel for conservation and, and starting to feel a concern for these fish? probably when we saw what was happening with this jig tournament and and what they were doing right and seeing all these dead fish after every tournament it was that's when I said we got to do something mm-hmm. we have to and you know when you when when you see dead fish that many i mean it wasn't just one or two it was a lot and it would be Big all, fish. All I mean, of the fish they weighed, most if, like 90% of them, I bet. And, it, and most of them were big females, mm-hmm. you know, because that's where the money was. You need to catch that big female. And, you know, we saw a decline in the fishery because they were killing these big females. And, you know, there for a while, our fishery was really starting to go downhill. And that's another reason that said, okay, we have to do something because the fishery in Boca Grande was, well, one year they just – went on by. They didn't even stop. I mean, they came back, but it was a terrible season. And I think that was in the early 2000s. It was terrible. I go, oh, God, what are we going to do? So we stepped up, and the whole community stepped up. Let me tell you, Boca Grande as a community stepped up 
and asked us what we needed, and they gave. Mm -hmm. They gave. Um, one of the things I've always been interested in, you know, being a Keys fisherman, and I did fish here that one time, but there's all this uh, Instagram stuff over the years where these um, captains and anglers were hanging on the tarpon and the, and, the, and the sharks were eating, you know, their, their tails off. And all the guys that fish home with Sasser were always complaining that we don't have the fish because Boca Grande sharks are eating everything. How prevalent are the sharks, and how damaging are those sharks to the to the the mass? Well, I think another part of that. Um, see, with live bait fishing, our fight times average seven to twelve minutes. That's it. I mean, we're using heavier tackle, right? And you still get the juice of the fight. I mean, don't get me wrong. And sometimes they're longer. They'll go twenty sure. or so minutes. I mean, but we're using, you know. 100-pound Dacron and 100-pound leaders, too. Uh, the jig fish fishermen were fighting their fish longer, promoting more shark attacks, and we saw an increase when these tournaments were at their height. The shark population, it seemed like, doubled and because they had an easy meal. Right. Um, sharks are bad every year. They follow the tarpon here. And it seems like the beginning of the season in late April and May, they're bad, mostly bull sharks. And then they get filled. It seems like they get their fill and they move on. And then you won't have a shark attack for two months. Mm -hmm. And then later in the season, they always come back. And that's when the bull and the tiger sharks, I mean, the uh, hammerheads and the tiger sharks show up. Why do these tarpon congregate into the past? For as long as anyone's been keeping records, they come here to feed because all the, the food that comes out, we have the Peace River and the Mayaka River that empties into Charlotte Harbor. And that tidal current, especially around the moons, the new and full moons, that's when the crab run is the best. And the, the crabs will cover the water. Absolutely. You could walk on them. Still today? Still today. Yeah. Really? It's amazing. And the tarpon just, they feed. They come here to feed before it pre-spawn. Pre-spawn. And they, then they leave here and go offshore. They go offshore the full moon in May, like they do in the Keys? Usually it's June. They wait till June. And I have been offshore 360, 70 feet and seen tarpon out there that far. Schools after schools of them. So that theory, I think, is very true. Where they get, they come here, but they come to fatten up, and that's what right. they do. Do you have any worm yeah. bars over here? Where they eat the palola worms under that big moon, like they do in the Keys? No. No. I wish we did, because I've heard that is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Now, we have this something weird that comes out of the past that glows like a a glow worm. And I've tried to net them, but they fall apart in your net. I don't know what they are. I've seen that in Boca Inlet. Boca Raton Inlet. I've I seen that. no idea what <laughs> that is. Thousands of them. Yeah. Yeah, and they're like luminescent and like glow and it's crazy and you yeah. can't you, they fall apart when yeah. you're trying to net one so the fish eat them i don't know i i, I don't know because mm -hmm. there, there's so many crabs floating out at the time too that you see fish just popping these crabs everywhere it's it's an incredible sight to see and we have what's called the hill tide i think you mentioned right i've been up there netting you have little dip nets and you net net these crabs and put them on a hook and pitch them to the, the tarpon that are feeding them just like a trout eating mayflies it's amazing they, they leave the deep water of the pass and they go up in that 38, 35 feet of water with all those crabs coming out and you can see them just pop, 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 pop. Just it's so it, cool, right? It is so cool. It is. And they still do that to this day. How many boats get up on that hill pass? There'll be quite a few. There'll, there'll probably be 30, 40 boats go up there. Mm -hmm. And it's tight, but if you, you get up there ahead of time, sometimes you get a couple of jump, but then once someone sees that, there they go. Mm -hmm. They all go. They see it. Well, you just were in the keys uh, voicing your opinion about this new TV series that they were trying to uh, yes. get past. Um, Florida Sports Fishing Championships. And they wanted to fish Isla Mirada, Sarasota, and, and Boca Grande. What did you see when you went to that meeting, uh, the meeting of the minds of the fishermen, the locals in the keys, and the tournament uh, promoters? When I got a call from Wesley Locke to come be at that tournament, as a representative from Boca Grande because she knew what we had gone through and what she was actually here during that time. I think it was a very impressive group. 
I mean, when you have that group of Bonefish Tarpon Trust, Captains for Clean Water, Upper Keys Guide Association, Lower Keys Guides, shop owners, and guides, I was pretty humbled to be in that group. And, but they all knew what I went through. And, and, and they all know that those fish are our fish and our fish are their fish. Those fish migrate this way. And they were very congratulatory, let's so to speak, as what I went through and what I did to get that championship banned. So I said, I'm on board. Whatever you guys, if you guys are against it, I'm against it. And they hammered those people pretty hard. They evidently the CEO, the marketing director, and one of the secretaries showed up. And they were very gracious, but I think they had started this too late and they threw something on the wall to see if it'd stick and it they weren't having it right they weren't having it what is the future of tarpon fishing over here with so many boats and so much pressure and the sharks you know the mayhem if you will well we've always had the crowds we've always had the sharks um the I, I think the the one thing that's good that's hurting us now is our water quality. Mm-hmm. That's going to hurt us now. Last year, we had the best tarpon season we've had in ten years. It was amazing. And why do you think that was? I think it was partly getting this. It it we got that jig banned in two thousand four. I think no fourteen maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I can't remember, but since then it's taken that long to get this fishery regenerated because of all these big fish that they killed. Right. And I mean, we were in double digits last year that we haven't been in eight years on a trip. It was amazing. Um, but I am, see, we have a red tide now <clears throat> and it's, we never had a red tide in the winter time. Never. What's that mean? What's going to happen now? I hope that we can get a lot of this. One thing is Mosaic is proposing to dig phosphate along the Peace River. We've got it. We've got it stopped now. But if they get their way and they're buying up all this property, water is going to all that runoff is going to go into the Peace River, come into the harbor, and it's just going to get worse. I'm really worried about all these red tides we're having. Right. It's um, very interesting. My father and I were just in a Boca Grande Beach a couple of days ago, and we never experienced red tides. We, the guy we were with, showed it to us. We walked to the beach, and we smelled it, yeah. and it tickles your throat. And I started coughing immediately. Immediately, yeah. started coughing. Yeah. That's what it does. It gets your respiratory system, and it kills fish. Yep, it depletes all the oxygen out of the water. Yep, and it'll kill tarpon too. Yep, I've seen dead tarpon. I've seen dolphins, manatees. Wow, it's been that bad. And we just seem to get it more often every year. As a kid growing up, I remember maybe every six or seven years. Mm-hmm. But now it seems like we get it every year. I mean, you just got, had Hurricane Ian come through here and devastated this place. I mean, you see all these trees that are down. That didn't help. You would think that the hurricanes would flush the water, flush the system. It pretty The hurricane basically agitated it. Let's put it that way, agitated. It was offshore, and it brought it inshore. And if you look at the red tide charts now that FWC puts out, the worst is between Sarasota and Naples, all in this area. And and throughout the years, it's been predominantly worse right here in that area between Sarasota and Naples. And I don't know if it's the rivers coming out here. We're at the Caloosahatchee South Mm -hmm. and Peace River and Mayaka River here. I don't know. Yeah. Mother Nature, you can't uh, dictate or or forecast. You know what's going to happen. Well, development doesn't help either. Yeah, no kidding. Oh. Would you ever see a point in time where the pass would be closed and they'd call it a sanctuary? They tried that. That was proposed. Who, who tried that? Well, when we were going through this jig lie bait debate and mm-hmm. and war, um, <clears throat> they basically thought that we were calling Boca Grand Pass. It's ours, and you know, it it we we control it. Not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said, well, "We'll just propose to get it shut down because the 
the island across the pass, Cayacasa, is a state park. And the southern tip of Boca Grande is a state park. And they say, well, why don't we just make the pass a state park and you only fish certain times of the day and it's closed at, at, at dark? Uh, that was going to open up a whole other can of worms. And they they talked about it pretty seriously. And I went, well, this is going to change the game. But it didn't didn't happen. Would you be for that? You know, if the old timers said when we started fishing at night, we didn't give the fish a break because they were getting fished all day and then again all night. I wouldn't be opposed to it. I mean, if they said, hey, you can't go out there at night, that'd change things for a lot of people and a lot of guides that are used to only fishing at night because some only fish at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if I don't know if I'd want it to be a, a state park, but maybe some regulations mm-hmm. to that effect would be I mean, maybe it, help. It would cost a lot of people um, a fair amount of money because you used to run three and four trips a day. Yep. Yep. The whole the whole island is based on on tarpon fishing. We used to the run, economy is like one hundred thirty million dollars a year right here. Right. Yep. We used to run a nine to noon trip, come in for lunch, go back two to five, come back, take a little break, and go back and fish seven to ten or seven to midnight, and do it all over again the next day. Wow. Yeah, that was nonstop. When I was a, that's when I was a lot younger too. <laughs> I can't do that now. Uh, I'll fish one trip a day now. That's it. But you know, it, seeing some kind of regulation probably wouldn't hurt. But I, I, I think doing what we did in this battle and getting the the pressure of a televised tournament away, because <clears throat> you know how when you're any tournament, you're under a different, you have a different game face no matter if it's televised or not. But then when you're televised, the pressure's on. You want to catch that big fish. You want to win. You want to be better than that other person. And you're going to do things you wouldn't normally do. Mm -hmm. And I think that pressure alone right there off of this fishery helped us tremendously. And letting the public know and the sponsors know that what they were doing to this fishery. And it was wrong. And they all agreed. I mean, the sponsors started pulling out like you wouldn't believe on this other deal that we did. Right. And I think this just recently happened too, that um, the sponsors were told what could happen if you televise live stream is what they were going to do, especially right. live stream right on a boat. And you could be exposing a site that we've been nurturing for years. And all of a sudden it's on live TV. That wasn't, yeah, that wasn't good. So forecasting the tournament series of any any sort of a tournament, you don't forecast a tournament ever happening again? I don't think so. I think they're going to try again, but they tried. I, I think they, they put it out right at the tail end of when they were wanting to start this tournament, and it was just not. Shut down. It was shut down. Yeah, certain, yeah. certain, certain locations just should not have tournaments. And this now, is the one. this FCS tournament, they had actually made Boca Grand Pass exempt in their fishing. So I went, huh, okay, but what's that going to do with the rest of it? And I, and I mentioned to them, I said, guys, there's a lot of times when all the fish in the area are in Boca Grand Pass. And if you guys are all outside of Boca Grand Pass, you don't catch anything. And you're on television. What's that going to do? Mm-hmm. You're going to open up Boca Grand Pass? Oh, no, we won't. Yes, you will. It happened before. Mm-hmm. So that's... We got it nipped in the bud for now. But good, for, good for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Keys guys were, those guys weren't playing. Right. Tell they, us about uh, uh, Betsy Bullard. Oh, you know, Betsy. A, a wonderful um, conservationist in the Florida Keys. Really a big voice of conservation. Tell us about the conversation that uh, was taking place in Isla Mirada about this tournament series and her voice. Betsy is a, I don't know her that well. I've only met her a couple of times, but she is a no nonsense in your face. I want you on my side type person. She did not cut any, any slack at all. And she basically told him what she thought about that tournament. And this is what I think you should do and basically go away. Was there any foul language? (laughs) No, (laughs) 
I don't think I did hear any just, foul language. Just love fist pounding. Well, maybe a couple, but you know, there were some. You could feel the tension in the air in that, it that was, meeting. It was adamant. Is there anything that you'd like to add to this conversation? Well, I think what I, I think as far as um, the history in Boca Grande that we're trying to preserve and trying to keep um, history alive in Boca Grande and the way it's done and the way it's always done. I mean, I'm I'm fishing the way they fish for a hundred years in Boca Grande, and it still works. And when you you bring in a, a new entity or a, this this listen, getting getting that jig band was huge. <clears throat> that was huge. I mean, I was ridiculed on the internet like you wouldn't believe. I was, you know. Oh, you're lying. You don't know what you're talking about. And, and, but standing up strong for what you believe in and, 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 and preserving this great fish, I'm your man. I'm not going to sit by and watch this fiasco that was happening. It was horrible. I mean, it was, and they were the owner of the tournament. He said, and I'm not going to mention any names because he's local. Maybe I could, but he uh, said, I'm going to stop when they tell me to stop. Well, we told him to stop, and I'm glad we did what we did because, I, like I said, last year was the best season we've had in eight years. Mm. It's phenomenal, and I think it was part of what we did to get this fishery back in back in order. Yeah, a lot of the big world record fish that were caught in Homosassa had tags on them that were tagged in Boca Grande. Yep, yep. You know, so if you do it correctly, they, these fish will survive. Yeah. I was amazed at how far these fish travel, too. I mean, you know, fish have been tagged in the Keys and show back up here in a day or two. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Right. And back in the Keys and like back. the next days. Yeah. yeah. Tommy, yeah, Tommy Locke said, yeah, fish came down to Channel 5 and he was back into Book Grand Pass by, you know, 10 hours from, from yeah. then or so. Yeah. It's amazing. So like Billy Pate, uh, originally when BTT was started, Billy Pate asked that legendary question about louisiana and everywhere else mexico i thought he asked that about africa no it was all about oh. this circle here he said are our fish their fish and their fish our fish yep. and that's why btt started looking at the bigger spectrum sure yeah. and, and doing the science to back it up right and they've done that a lot with bonefish in belize and bahamas exactly right cuba well yeah. i think that's why those guys were so interested in my opinion too down in the Keys when I went down for that meeting. So I, I know those those fish come from here. I mean, our fish come from that area. And you saw the repercussions of these tournaments. And those guys said last year was phenomenal too, from what I understand, you know, down in the Keys. Yeah. We're not guides, so that's, we can't answer that question. <laughs> We're underground. We, we suck every well, year. So. Well, <laughs> don't, don't ever ask our opinion about the numbers and how, how many you're catching and well, that kind of stuff. Your dad is going to be skewed with us. Yeah. I do know that coming towards winding down in my career, and I, I've seen fisheries deplete and come back, deplete and come back. But this one just meant it, it, it was in my heart. Right. I had to see this saved. And if I stood back and watched, I'd never forgive myself. And I'm very proud, very proud to have my name as part of helping save that fishery. Yeah, and a lot of people out there speak so highly of you, and they've directed uh, this podcast to you. You have to speak to Frank Davis. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thanks for thank all you've you done, very... Frank, and thanks for being the leader of, well, of very conservation welcome. Boca Graham. Hey, it's, yeah. it's a pleasure, pleasure talking to you, and especially sharing my views about you know, if nothing would have happened, who knows? Uh, if we wouldn't have done anything, what would have happened? Right. If it mm -hmm. would have continued to go on in this fiasco, it would have been a nightmare. Right. Uh, but there's still plenty of boats and still plenty of fish, and everybody's having a good time. There you awesome. go. That's what we That's like. what it's all about. That's right. Well, thanks, Frank. Thank you, buddy. You're welcome. Appreciate Thank it. you. All right. Without staunch fighters for conservation like Frank Davis, we could one day lose what we all love so much. Tarpon fishing is an overwhelming experience which we should all be dedicated to preserving. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, 
Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just a ride. Just a ride.